Stone, the 50 worst decisions <laughs> in music history. From Billboard, fake streams aren't slowing down. And also from Billboard, is the music industry's love affair with TikTok dead? Already? Oh my God, already? It seems like we just started dating. Exactly. Uh... Okay, we've got so much to cover. Jay and I, well, well, we'll tell you all about it. We'll explain it. We really will. Because it's about time to start the podcast right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. On the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, can I just say that we've had a busy weekend? We, we're, had, we, are we had quite the week, Sunday. didn't we? Yes, and it was, um, well, I was with you yesterday, yeah. and uh, we were with, how, how many people do you think were there at that event? I'm guessing uh, 500? 500 of our closest friends in the music industry yesterday. Yeah. It was just a fantastic, fantastic day yesterday, Saturday for us, uh, at the Variety Crazy Awesome event. I mean, we just had so much fun. Yeah. And... Gosh, I, I don't know what to say other than it was just an absolutely fantastic well, weekend. Well, we will dig in because I know we want to yeah. talk about that. But before we do, just really quickly, how about that intro from the oh, Colorado goodness. State University Music Business Program? That intro to our uh, lovely podcast. That was such an amazing day. Well, and I was not there, but you texted it to me. I'm like... What is this? This is awesome. And um, Well, I should explain, well, you, right? Um, yeah, you should explain. Yeah, this last Thursday, I had a great day with the Colorado State University Music Business Program and uh, Eric Griffin. Uh, there were two classes that I spoke at uh, in the morning. There was a smaller one, and then in the afternoon, a larger one. I uh, was walking into the lecture hall, and I could hear Eric count down three, two, one. And then, you know, the students... Uh, gave us the intro that you heard at the beginning of this uh, podcast. It was very special. It was very cool. And uh, I might have gotten a little choked up. So thank you so much to uh, Eric and uh, those great students. Oh, totally. Well, and didn't you tell me that that as part of their assignments that they they asked them to listen to our podcast, yeah. which is yeah, that so was... charming and so uh, delightful. And oh, my goodness, that that's one of our coolest intros Amongst a lot of cool intros. <laughs> it sure is. And special shout out to uh, Eric and his wonderful students at Colorado State um, for making me feel so welcome. And they had such um, intelligent questions. And we just had a really good uh, conversation there. And listen, um, I asked them if, if they ever want to reach out uh, to you or me. Uh, we're always here for them. That's right. But don't listen to us because we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. You, there's that. And that was like 200 strong, right? That, I, that was I'm really guessing. Good... I was just looking out. You know, I, I don't want to be one of those guys that uh, makes his crowd size larger than it is. But it was, I think it was a couple hundred people. It looked like maybe a little less, but it sure sounded like, you know, 500 people when they uh, when they shouted. But it was it was very cool. Um, on the way back, I. I listened to the uh, Bono autobiography. Now, I'd already read it, and I rarely read a book twice. But mm -hmm. over the last week or so, I listened to the audiobook because it's it's different than any other audiobook in that 
each kind of um, chapter is based on a song. Uh, the name of the um, book is Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. And at the beginning of each chapter, he plays those songs um, stripped down, like acoustically. And it's just mm. beautiful. And uh, you, you've been reading the book. Uh, what are your thoughts so far? No, I haven't started it yet. Oh, I thought you did. In, no, I haven't started. I have seen, a, uh, I went back onto YouTube and saw a bunch of his interviews that he's been doing for the performance and, the, and the, the tour that he did and the book, of course. But no, I haven't actually started it. But I'm going on holiday next week. Ah. And, and that's that's going to be my prime reading on the, on the airplane. So. Well, I know you read one section because there, was, there was one part of it that you and I talked about that was sort of emotional and very powerful. Um, why don't you jump into that? Because I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah. So he started talking about, uh, this was a tour, I think around the early two thousands. And he said, uh, upon arrival at this city, we'd received, uh, we discovered that they'd received some death threats. And he said, maybe not just from pranksters that if we performed pride in the show, I would not make it to the end of the song. Ooh, he said, I had pretended I was not bothered by the intel and I trusted our security team, you know, that they'd be extra diligent and would put in additional measures. The venue was swept for firearms and explosives and we made a decision to go ahead as planned. If we started the song Pride defiantly by the third verse, I was losing some of my nerve or at least losing concentration. It wasn't just melodrama when I closed my eyes and sort of half kneeled to disguise the fact that I was fearful to sing the rest of the words. Which, of course, are shots ring out in the Memphis sky, free at last, they took your life, they could not take your pride. Ooh. Uh, he said, I might have missed the Messiah complex at work in my own anxiety, but it was only when I opened my eyes that I realized I couldn't see the crowd. Adam Clayton was blocking the view, standing right in front of me. He'd stood in front of me for the length of the verse. I got goosebumps wow. when I read that. Yeah, that was so cool. Wow, so, so, so cool. So we'll talk uh, about I'll it look, once, you, once you read it. Yeah, once uh, I read it. Yeah, my, I can hardly wait to finish it. Um, but I do encourage people to read this book, but the audiobook is special um, because just like... Um, other books like this where the author reads their own book. He is a poet and he's so good uh, with painting those visual pictures in your head. So highly recommend um, uh, Bono's new book. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and then the event that you and I went to yesterday was the Variety Hitmakers Brunch. And uh, yeah. a good friend, Shirley Halperin, invited us, and we are so thankful. We got to meet her, her husband, Tom, as well, while we were there. Oh, great Tom guy. A little shop with him. Great guy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and it's worth sort of, you know, we've talked about this a number of times on the show, about um, Variety's coverage of the industry has just you know, over the last few years has really gotten unbelievably fantastic. And yeah. That, that team you know, over there, we talk about Jim yeah. Oswad and, and Shirley all the time. And we, we don't miss uh, any of their, their coverage. And you got to make sure that you pick up the latest issue of variety. It's their hit makers, 2022 issue. It's got Elton John and Dua Lipa on the cover. I'm telling you some of the best music industry coverage on the planet. It's a must read. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that event, as I mentioned, was the sixth annual Variety Hitmakers Celebration. Um, they look back at the year in music and recognizing the writers, the producers, the publishers, managers, executives who helped make and break the 25 most consumed songs of the year. Yeah, it was hosted by DJ Cassidy and on honorees in attendance included Dua Lipa, and she was Hitmaker of the Year, Imagine Dragons, the group of the year. Um, Kim Petras, Innovator of the Year, and Omar Apollo, um, it was the TikTok Future Icon Award winner, uh, Selena Gomez, um, Film Song of the Year, um, for that documentary that we were talking about, um, and then presenters like her, Jack Harlow, and Rita Wilson. No, really cool to see everyone in the room and mm -hmm. to say the food was, was great, it was fantastic food, everything really was great, was. and man, they really did a great job. With everything, and of course, leading the event was none other than Shirley Halperin, and she's the Variety's uh, she's Variety's executive editor for music. And during her intro address, she presented what Variety learned from interviewing their 150 hit makers this year. Yeah, it was super interesting. The first uh, point that she uh, mentioned that they learned was the industry is sleeping 
on R&B. I thought that was interesting. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She, she also said the most pressing issue facing the music business, uh, according to executives and, and folks they interviewed, is oversaturation and overabundance of songs. And boy, that is so true. Yeah. And then the next one was the slowdown in stars and artist development. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, if there's 100,000 tracks roughly uploaded every day, you know, it's a fire hose of music. Absolutely. Uh, also, of course, not surprisingly, concerns over streaming splits and issues surrounding representation. Yeah. And one of the things that came up was actually a positive thing. Um, she mentions that they learned that interpolations that we talk about and samples are the surest way or the surest ways to chart success. Really yeah. cool you know, uh, address. And a couple of things that I found fascinating was, you know, some of the folks that were um, awardees. A lot of them talked about, a couple of them started as assistants in the industry. Uh, a couple of the artists were talking about they did internships. And, you know, hearing about, you know, how they kind of got glimpses of the industry, literally starting at the bottom, Yeah, uh, was pretty gratifying to hear how, you know, how they got, how important that was for their, you know, for their education and for their path and their development. Yeah. Um, but you don't think about that sometimes is, you know, how do people get to that spot? Right. And it was fascinating. I found that very right. fascinating. Atlantic was label of the year. And mm -hmm. I think even Julie Greenwald mentioned in, in her address, you know, she worked her way up as well. And she was complimented by a lot of artists uh, that night or that day yesterday um, for, just her hard work and being straightforward. So uh, I love that. You know, this music business has a reputation, uh, a bad reputation. And now we're starting to, and we'll talk about this in a moment, we're starting to uh, work towards paying songwriters uh, fairly. We're, we have women and people of color in the music industry in leadership positions. You know, we're making, they may be too slow, but we are making progress. Absolutely. We should probably also mention that the event was put on, uh, their, their sponsors were TikTok, IHG Hotels and Resorts, and Luminate, our good friends over at Luminate. Yeah. And uh, boy, collectively, they put on an absolutely stunning event. And we were flattered and honored to get to hang out and and, uh, <laughs> and just be flies on the wall. Right? It was and, a uh, fun, fun day. Yes. So do yourself a favor yes. and pick up the latest issue of Variety. They're Hitmakers 2022. Um Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Oh, before Which, I forget, just really quickly, one of the yeah. things that um, we've been talking about a lot lately, and I talked about it at Colorado State um, at those guest lectures, is Web3. And yep. I get a lot of artist managers who will ask me, like, what is Web3 and why should I care? You know, what is a DAO, you know, what is an NFT? Why, why would I do this? You know, um, what's, what's a virtual world. And, you know, we report on this all the time, these artists, and we did this week about artists that have performed, you know, like on Roblox, for example, but to get some clarity, one of the people that I turn to, who I think is one of the uh, smartest people in the industry is Vicki Nauman. And, uh, I spoke with her this last week about, Web3, what it is, and how does it relate to the music business? Let's listen to what she said. Vicki, thanks so much for joining me today. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, how do you see the music industry using things like Web3, DAOs, NFTs, and, and virtual spaces? Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking about this because I think that um, I think a lot of people in the music industry are getting focused on the wrong things and um, and the way that I see the way that I see a lot of these things evolving is into behaviors that we already really have that music fans and and artists and music industry you know embraces. So I see like a lot of interactive fan clubs that will probably come out of. DAOs and NFTs and probably a little bit less transactional than what we saw in 2021, where there were a lot of, um, you know, just JPEGs of art and there were some music initiatives that were that were transactional. But I, I think of things more about um, we don't really right now have that many ways to build communities around music. And that's really what 
fan clubs have always been. And, um, you know, we have audiences in Web 2, but I think Web 3 is much more about communities. So then how do you pull fans together? Is it about a DAO where people have voting rights and people, it's an actual kind of like a little mini, um, you know, co-op or, you know, some sort of, of, you know, autonomously run organization? Or is it more of, a, you know, an NFT where there's a limited edition of tokens that can be sold and then fans can be a part of a club that may have benefits around ticketing or artist relations or other kinds of goods and services. But I think um, I think a lot of these things are going to evolve into um, into ways to bring fans and artists closer together. Common sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it is confusing. And there's, you know, again, this stuff is coming at us so fast and it's really hard to keep track of, of all of all the opportunities, all the, the sort of, sort of theories of where everything is going. So it's nice to hear some kind of down to earth. Yeah, about, you're right. There's a is. lot of hype, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, in the cryptocurrency world, there's a lot of craziness uh, going on right now. And, but there are also some really great companies that are doing some amazing things in the in the Web3 space. Um, so we'll we'll continue to report on those where it makes sense. But I, I really thank uh, Vicky Nauman. Um, if you don't know Vicky, um, she was um, running one of my favorite radio stations, um, KEXP up in Seattle. Um, but she also um, worked at Seven Digital. And now mm -hmm. she's the uh, founder of uh, and CEO of Cross Border Works Consulting. So, Vicky, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to explain that to us. We appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, and of course, what an interesting person she is in the fact that she sort of a different, you know, how 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 uh, her wide variety of skills, basically working at KEXP, which is such a great station, of course, being so artist oriented and music focused, and then jump over to the tech side, which is also always impressive and, and very yeah. cool when you meet folks like that. Yeah. So very neat. And before we jump in this week, um, I wanted to talk just a little bit about, um, there was an article in billboard this last week written by Kristen Robinson. And the headline was, is this the age of the songwriter? And I sent it after I read it, I sent it to a few of my songwriting, um, friends and there's a video that's, I think really important as part of that story. And I highlight it in your morning coffee and I put the time signature where I think you should go in and check it out. And the reason for that is because it's a couple of people that you and I have spoken to. Chris Castle, who mm -hmm. um, is a fantastic uh, advocate for artist rights. He's an attorney, um, just a, a really smart guy and, and a good guy. One of my favorite people to reach out to and someone you and I have interviewed Merc Mercuriatus from hypnosis yeah. song fund. They were at the university of Georgia artist rights symposium, which is what this article is about. And that was called the future of authorship and the copyright office. Right. And so it kind of had this dry, uh, title and I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And I jumped into the video and I thought it was really interesting. So I just wanted to, for you and I to just jump through some of the highlights of that video for our listeners who uh, maybe don't have the time to uh, dig in. The first one and two kind of go hand in hand. And it's something that Merck frequently says, and it's so important to realize, and that is that the three biggest advocates for songwriters are the three major publishers. But... They would like to advocate for the songwriters, but they're also owned and controlled by the three major recorded music companies. Yeah, that's that's important, right? On the recorded music side of the space, the major record companies are getting four-fifths of the revenue, 80% gross margin, 40% net margin, and typically they own those masters in perpetuity. Right, but on the publisher side, songwriter side of the space, you're looking at one-fifth of the revenue and only one-fifth of the margin. So... As Merck points out, with good management and lawyers, we're seeing some of the songs, you know, the rights uh, going back to the writers that created them. Right. And needless to say, and this is something that, that Merck says all the time, there is no business without songwriters. That's super important. So when you go see Dua Lipa, Justin Bieber, and some of the biggest artists on the planet, they're typically singing someone else's songs. 
Yeah, and then of course when when we think about a platinum record, which of course is a million sales, um, that's in a country here in the U.S. with around 360 million people. <laughs> so Merck has has sort of wisely recognized early on that streaming was going to bring some of those other 100 and 359 million people to actually be paying for music. Right. He he also points out there's a couple more highlights here that I think are important. One is that session musicians they can set their own price. Songwriters typically can't. Basically, all songs are treated as equal. Yeah, exactly. And and, and whatever negotiations are happening, um, Merck, of course, says that no negotiations should take place without songwriter representation. Yeah, sounds fair. You know, Merck is a supporter of uh, CRB4, Copyright Royalty Board, and you and I talk about that, you know, ad nauseum. All the time. That uh, settlement, because it'll provide stability for the next five years. And hopefully move the negotiations to a free market where songwriters have more control. Merck uses the Screen Actors Guild as kind of a a model. Right. And top artists would support songwriters getting paid properly, just like actors support screenwriters proposed and having basically a proposed guild for songwriters. Right. They also talked about the issues with music metadata. Again, something you and I talk about frequently because it's evolving and changing, you know, there's there's a unique identifier that goes to the DSPs for the on the master side. It's called the ISRC code, right? The insiders in the music industry know that that's a unique identifier for each master. Each song has an ISRC and it, it has that for life. But what a lot of people don't know is there's an ISWC code on the publishing side. So DSPs send data to the PROs, you know, like ASCAP and BMI, CSAC. And this is after the fact they send that data to the PROs and they match the publisher and songwriters with their databases. The problem with that, as Merck points out, uh, Amy Thompson has been screaming this from the rooftops for a long time, is that over 30% winds up in the black box, meaning it's not matched. So it's ultimately you know, dispersed by market share. The argument is that the ISWC, including that publishing code, would slow down the process. Hmm. Right. So they say songwriters' statements are large and complicated, very difficult to audit unless you're um, one of the top money makers. Right. It could be expensive to do that. And the last point, just really quickly, is Chris Castle quotes Guy Guy Forsyth. That's really uh, easy for you to say. Uh, the the, The line in his song, Long, Long Time, and I love this. The line is, we Americans are freedom loving people and nothing says freedom like getting away with it. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god but but you know and i remember this when i was working catalog over at emi when you at that time i learned a lot about music publishing and you know it's rare that masters transfer right between labels but in the publishing world boy you know a lot of there's always a lot of, of acquisitions and changing of, of ownership and then those deals expire and then a, a a songwriter can move his publishing to a different uh publisher and so it is very complex i totally get that but you know what? We live in an age of data. It can't be that hard. And it, that that IS, uh, ISWC, the, the, ISR, the ISWC, ISRC is the International Sound Recording Code. Right. That's for the master. Yeah. And so so the, the ISWC, I assume, is the International Sound Writers Code. I think so. I just know that it's attached to the publishing. Yeah. Right. But, you know, we got to, there's got to be a way to figure that out. So, so good stuff. Watch that video. Those are two of the brightest minds in the business and it is really enjoyable. Plus they have a really good sense of humor and they're both big music uh, freaks. So, Wow. I mean, we haven't even jumped into our, uh, our stories, but let's, let's, uh, you know, let's thank our sponsors before we get too deep in here. Totally. The Your Morning Coffee podcast, Us, we are brought to you by our good friends over at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team 
seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to Banzoogle.com. Try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, sir. We're also brought, brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Indeed, Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, sir. And finally, the Music Business Association. Uh, For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville, May 15 through 18. We'll see you there. Yes, indeed. Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, big thanks. We couldn't do it without you. (laughs) And boy, Jay and I had a great time yesterday. And that Jay guy, in case you don't know, he is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, Fox Home Entertainment, and were you a gin and tonic drinker yesterday? I think that's I, what you were drinking. I think it was um, Tito's and tonic. That's vodka. Oh, there you go. Vodka and tonic. My apologies. Yeah. And a vodka and tonic drinker. There yeah. you have there, it. There you have it. And uh, yeah, they had really good food there. Um, this gentleman <laughs> with uh, super good taste in friends and in music, um, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. And I forgot to mention his name is Mike Etchart. Holy cow. There you go. Yep, for crying out loud. And uh, and I got to say, over at the event yesterday, Dua Lipa was checking you out. I'm just saying. I'm a, I'm a married spud, you know, I mean. I know it, but she didn't know that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear go. Lord. We did right. get pretty close to a lot of those uh, folks were walking by our table. And, you know, we, you and I, the, the most fun part, I think, well, I shouldn't say the most fun, but one of the fun parts was, you know, you and I get our getting our photo taken at the step and repeat, like you know, we're like we're somebody, <laughs> like people kind of whispering to themselves, "Who are those guys? Who the hell are those clowns?" Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, was hilarious. Exactly. So let's let's day. jump in. We've got some really yes. great stories. The lead story in your morning coffee this week um, was from Rolling Stone, and it uh, the headline was "The Fifty Worst Decisions in Music History." <laughs> And it is such a fun read. And I would love to sit here and read this entire thing to you. But Mike and I have picked out just a a few that we thought um, were, you know, uh, pretty big ones. So I'm going to kick it off with um, Decca Records passes on signing the Beatles in 1962. The decision by Decca Records to turn down the Beatles after an audition in January of 1962. That's been written about many times. So it's hard to separate myth from fact. The Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, said that he was told by DECA head Dick Rowe that, quote, guitar guitar groups are on their way out, end quote. But Rowe insisted this was a complete fabrication. What's known for sure is that the Beatles put down 15 songs on tape for DECA January 1st, 1962, and that DECA rejected the fledgling group. The label signed Brian Poole and the Tremolos instead. This was obviously an enormous blunder that cost Decca countless millions, but let's be happy about it that it happened since it put the Beatles on a course that led them to George Martin and all the music they would make together. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, number 21 on the list was really interesting, too. And we've talked about this before, or, or elements of it that make it really interesting. Uh, number 21, again, Scooter Braun pisses off Taylor Swift. This was back in 2019. And you may remember Scooter Braun had no idea who he's messing with, as the article starts off, when in 2019, he bought Big Machine Label Group, which included Taylor Swift's master recordings. The music manager behind Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and Usher may have thought he could simply scoop off the masters and squeeze them for money, but he didn't count on Taylor Swift going public with her rage over the situation, and more importantly, re-recording all of her old albums so she'd own the new Taylor's version masters. 
He also became public enemy number one to the Swifty army overnight. Uh, uh, he says, I regret it, and it makes me sad that Taylor had that reaction to the deal. He said, last year, I guess he said that. I don't know what story she was told. I asked for her to sit down with me several times, but she refused. Mm-hmm. Now, Taylor says none of that is true, but it doesn't really matter at this point. Braun's reputation has never been worse. But the other thing that we've talked about, which I find so fascinating, is that I, I don't recall ever seeing, you know, because this the whole re-record thing has happened over the years with different groups. After they get dropped by their label, then maybe we'll re-record like a Greatest Hits album. Patsy Cline did song. it back in the day. This is not new. Yes. This is not new, but it has never been done with the success. No. And the and and those things are kind of kept under the under the radar. It wasn't something you wanted to brag about, but Taylor absolutely made it a giant thing and it was unbelievably successful yeah. for her. So Yeah, God. there there are bands like the rock band Kiss that re recorded their most popular tracks once they um got past that clause in their contract and they use those for sync. So when they get a sync mm-hmm. license, they can keep a, a majority of uh, the funds. But when you read part of that story, the thing that jumped into my mind was the immortal words by Ricky Warwick. You know, there are three sides to every story, yours, <laughs> yes. mine, and the truth. I thought that was good. So, yeah, absolutely. so speaking Someone of, did. you know, not letting facts get in the way of a good story. Number nine in this list was you two give away their new album for free on iTunes. And I remember this vividly. And I was really surprised at the backlash because I love you too. And I mm-hmm. thought it was so amazing, but I wasn't thinking about people's hard drive space and, and other things. So you two moved from clubs to arenas to stadiums over the course of just a few years by thinking big, right? And you learned that in that Bono book that we uh, were, were reading right now. It was a mentality that served them quite well through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. But it, they took it a bit too far in 2014 when they linked a deal with Apple in which their album Songs of Innocence would show up for free to every single Apple user's personal devices. We're talking about a non-insignificant percent of planet Earth here. And it was quickly revealed that not everyone who owned a phone was by definition a U2 fan. So the backlash was swift and brutal, especially since Songs of Innocence wasn't exactly another Joshua Tree or Octon Baby in terms of quality. Uh, okay. Um, but before long, Apple was forced to create a tool that allowed users to delete the record with a single click. They even set up a support website to guide users through the process. Quote, I thought if we just put our music within reach of people, they might choose to reach out towards it, Bono said later. Mm, not quite. <laughs> uh, number 25 on the list that, that kind of caught my eye was, uh, this happened in 1996, Warner Brothers Records gives REM an $80 million contract extension right before their career starts to crater. Now, crater is a little strong of a word, I think. I do too. But, uh, yeah, but they said, so, you know, remember they did a deal, was it in the very late 80s or early 90s with, um, with it was the late 80s, I think, with where they uh, they signed, REM's deal with uh, IRS ran out and they signed with Warner Brothers Records. So this was an extension to that deal. As it says, you know, in 96, they were coming off an unbelievably successful run of albums. Um, but And this was the pinnacle of, but, of big money deals for icons like Janet Jackson and Metallica. And labels were swimming in profits thanks to $20 compact discs but what Warners didn't know was that founding drummer Bill Barry was about to leave the band he didn't know that their 1998 LP Up would be a kind of a commercial dud and that the next albums would fare even worse they didn't know that Napster was going to hit within a few years and destroy their CD based business model so they thought that 1996 was going to last forever, but in the end, it cost them a fortune. So by, yeah. by now, 25 years later, this is supposedly still regarded by many as the worst record deal of all time. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> uh, my next one um, is one of my favorite ones. It's number 16 on the list. Metallica takes its own fans takes on own fans over Napster. So this is in 2000. Metallica weren't wrong to see Napster as an existential threat to the uh, record industry as it, you know, as it had existed up until that point. They, they weren't wrong to be horrified that their 2000 song, I Disappear, leaked onto the file sharing platform before they were ready to release it, right? So they weren't wrong to be upset that fans were sharing their entire catalog for free. They weren't even wrong to sue Napster. But in the eyes of many fans, they crossed a huge line 
when they delivered the names of over 30,000 Metallica fans to Napster and asked them to be banned by the service. The backlash was almost universal, and it dogged them for years. Quote, maybe the, not the smartest PR move of all time, but at least we won the argument, end quote. Uh, Metallica drummer Lars Ul- Ulrich said years later. Quote, listen, as they say, that and a quarter will get me on the bus, but it seemed like a really good idea at the time, end quote. It was a horrible, horrible move. Yeah, gosh, I remember that. That was just, it was in the new, it was, it was, oh, it was, was bad. bad. That was bad. Uh, number foot uh, 35 on the list is Jane's, this is back in 1991, Jane's Addiction Breakup at the dawn of alt-rock revolution that they helped inspire. I remember working with them when I was at Warner Brothers Records at the time. They were a bit of a mess, to say the least. Uh, This article goes on to point at the height of the hair metal movement. Of course, Jane's Addiction rose out of the L.A. club scene, and... um, and their success allowed groups like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden to emerge onto the national scene. And they started the original Lollapalooza, mm-hmm. of course, to give these bands an even bigger platform. But after recording just two proper albums, right at the moment that alt-rock started making real money, the group called it quits. <laughs> so Perry Farrell, he's basically said to Rolling Stone this year, I was thinking about why exactly I would do something like that. He said, looking back <laughs> on it now... Seems like one of the dumber moves I've ever made in my life. We were on top of the world. The band reunited back in 97, of course, but they never regained the momentum they'd lost from the original split. And they had tremendous momentum. Yeah. And they were were knuckleheads at the time. Well, it was a shame. His honesty is refreshing. There you go. I'll give him that. Absolutely. My my last one in this list um, is number 22. And there's several of these types of situations in this list where a band will part ways with a member. Um, and, but this one I, I thought was so surprising. It's Motley Crue fire Vince Neil and make an industrial album. So this is in 1994, the dawn of alternative rock revolution in the early nineties was essentially a death sentence for most of the hair metal bands of the eighties. But there might've been a scenario in which Motley Crue could have survived. They were the biggest band from the scene. Nikki Six, who was and technically still is a very gifted songwriter, and their 1989 album, Dr. Feelgood, was their most popular release to date. If they'd stuck together, worked hard, and built on that momentum of Dr. Feelgood, hanging in there alongside Nirvana wouldn't have been unthinkable. Instead, they fired frontman Vince Neil, hired journeyman singer uh, John Karabi to replace him, and decided to make an alt-rock album. This process ate up a very long five years. By the time they reemerged with the self-titled album in 1994, well, grunge was already on its way out, and it seemed like visitors from another eon in their tour to support the album played across oceans of empty seats. They reunited with Vince Neil three years later and attempted to plow forward, but by then the number of people who didn't really care had ballooned even more. Well, you know, it's it's bands are like families in marriage, right? You know, it it you just sometimes you just get so fed up. And then the the, the last one I'm going to talk about is number thirty eight, sort of a similar situation. Roger Waters dares Pink Floyd to do it without him. This is back in nineteen eighty five. Hard to believe that yeah. that that's when the split happened. Uh, but when he parted ways with the band in nineteen eighty five, he thought he was dooming the band forever because he he was the primary songwriter and creative force. Uh, in the band, he figured the band would simply fold up shop and all their fans would follow him into his solo career. But what he didn't realize was that Pink Floyd was a significantly more famous brand than Roger Waters and that the band's remaining members could continue packing stadiums, even scoring new hit songs with the help of outside writers. When they both hit the road back in 87, Roger Waters faced oceans of empty seats in many markets while Pink Floyd were playing multiple nights in football stadiums. Mm-hmm. It drove him absolutely insane. <laughs> As he said back in the day, if one of us was going to be called Pink Floyd, it's me. Uh, that's my pig up there. That's my plane crashing. It's their dry ice. Wow. Which was not untrue, but you know, this is a, a cautionary tale for anybody, any bands that want to split up like that, which is the brand is far, even, yes. even when you think the lead singer or the main songwriter that people know that but most people don't and yeah and an artist manager put it best to me illustrating this point in that if the rolling stones play in tokyo they play the tokyo dome if mick jagger plays a solo show he's playing a large club 
Um, right. Same with a lot of these acts. So, and, and, you know, they have comfortably numb, which, you know, it's one of those songs that it's just so iconic and people want that, that sound and that guitar and that, that voice. And conversely, there's a lot of bands who just grab some sound alike singer and bring them in mm -hmm. and they continue on their way. People just want to relive their youth. And most people don't pay attention to who the people in the band are. It's a, it's a song and it's a group name that they follow. And a and sound. Yeah. It's the reason why Foreigner is still out on the road with no original members. Yeah. You know, it's because it's a brand. Foreigner is the brand. Nobody cares. They just yeah. want to hear those songs from Foreigner. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. it's a cautionary tale and it's it gets uh it gets proven many many times yeah all the time it sure does and and we failed to mention this was written by andy green uh, for rolling stone mm -hmm. the 50 worst decisions in music horrible business moves artistic blunders <laughs> deeply questionable moral judgment with uh, appearances by adam levine kiss kanye west and many more uh really fun read i mean this could be a, a book and i wish we could it cover could more of these um but those were just a few of our favorites but uh and probably more to come but great job uh andy green over there at rolling stone killer piece yeah exactly our next article is from billboard j fake streams are not slowing down uh, and both of these stories i should point out uh we're covering two rolling stone pieces both written by elias light i had a chance to talk with elias he's one of my favorite writers and he's just so good at digging in and uh, getting to the bottom of a lot of these things and you know, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind when it comes to fake streams. Um, he points out that the problem is bigger than most people realize, and it seems to benefit major label stars as well as developing acts, according to internal data from SoundCloud. Right. Uh, at least since this summer, however, SoundCloud has detected evidence of fraudulent streams or manipulation on multiple releases, but this is interesting, from both notable independent acts and major label artists, including hit makers with track records of successful singles, according to two sources familiar with the company's operation who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Yeah. So, you know, when we started talking about this, and we this has been a constant uh, topic of debate with us or a topic of conversation, sure. it was typically, you know, smaller bands that were out there kind of uh, yeah. playing in this, in this field of, of fake streams. But now it seems to be even establish acts, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. And uh, listeners of your morning coffee uh, might remember that last summer I had a conversation with Jen Mosse over at uh, Spotify about this problem and what can be done to combat it. Let's let's listen in. This is what Jen Mosse said uh, back in June about fake streams, bots, and spin farms. Jen, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to talk with me. When, when I read stories about people trying to game the system uh, when it comes to streaming music, I often see terms like bots and spin farms. What exactly are bots and spin farms? All right. So first off, you have like the term bot, which can have numerous definitions. But here at Spotify, we think of artificial streams, which are those typically associated with bots, as those that don't represent genuine listener intent. And a spin farm, on the other hand, is likely a series of devices that are set up to generate streams automatically on particular pieces of content. So how big a problem are artificial streams today? Well, stream manipulation is an industry-wide issue. Um, you know, it's it's not just at Spotify, um, sadly, but also it's it's industry-wide. Um, and Spotify takes it very seriously. So while the percentage of potentially impacted streams overall is extremely small, that doesn't mean we're okay with it. Um, in fact, we're developing technologies and processes and policies that protect the integrity of the Spotify platform. And that's an area of absolute top priority for us. Um, bad actors, such as those that promise things like playlist placements or a specific number of streams in exchange for money, they violate our terms of service. And they encourage stealing legitimate earnings from hardworking and deserving artists and rights holders. We take that very seriously um, as it keeps us from our company mission of a million artists living off their art and giving billions of fans the opportunity to enjoy and be inspired by it. 
taken legal action against bad actors and helped take down artificial streaming companies and markets around the world. Engaging in any way with artificial streams can result in the withholding of manipulated streams from streaming numbers, can withhold royalties, and where necessary, we can remove the tracks from our service. So it ultimately hurts an artist's long-term prospects. Spotify reports the number of artificial streams to our partners on a monthly basis, and we believe that artificial streams are decreasing on a monthly basis, and the number of pieces of legitimate content delivered are increasing. So what can be done about this problem besides what you just kind of outlined? Um, what are some things that can be done at the DSP level, but also for artists, managers, labels, distributors? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, so on the Spotify side, we're working to stamp out any artificial streaming activity across our service. We have a um, robust fraud detection team who use uh, best-in-class anomaly detection capabilities and the expertise gained during years of studying abnormal streaming behavior to proactively detect abuse and quickly mitigate the impact of the activity. Again, while we can't prevent the abuse from happening, the listeners and artists who use our platform should feel secure that we have technology and a team of experts committed to fighting this issue. Spotify also engages in a range of direct and indirect mitigations in response to fraudulent activity to protect the integrity of our charts. Um, those can include removing artificial users or albums from our platform to more indirect measures of zeroing out streams from royalty, chart, or metric considerations. This means that even when an artificial stream occurs, it's not necessarily counted towards charts, royalties, or other metrics. Um, on the artists, artist managers, labels, and distributors side, um, education is extremely important. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you about it today. Um, we have educational articles and videos on Spotify for artists, which we are, are which are like extremely thorough. We've um, researched them, we've interviewed tons of people and, um, and put those together through our preferred provider program. We ask that any distributor who wants to be listed as preferred on our website also um, is sure to educate their community of distributed artists and labels on um, this issue um, because we want anyone to understand um, about the types of promotions they should really steer clear of. Thank you so much for taking the time to help us understand this uh, problem, Jen. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jay. There it is. Right, exactly. And so, and yet here we are continuing to talking about it and um, yeah, it's it's really surprising. But you know, this is this kind of reminds me of uh, back in the, when was that in the '90s, I guess, with the whole thing with independent promotion yeah. and basically paying all these independent promoters to get your songs on the radio, and you know, people doing it because everybody else was doing it. And so we kind of find ourselves in that situation again, where you've got these established acts. And other established acts are doing it. So everyone kind of feels like they need to do the same thing to to stay in the game. Yeah. And it's not just streams. We're finding um, a lot of artists more on the developing side and middle class artists are doing things like buying um, likes and follows and trying to boost their social footprint. Uh, unfortunately for them, it's pretty easy to look at data platforms and determine when people don't have engagement that matches, um, with their, uh, increased, uh, listener, not listener, but follower counts and likes and things like that. Um, and I think it's important to note that Spotify is working against this, you know, the kind of the fake streams. I know all of the DSPs are, and, and we really appreciate Jen kind of talking us through all of that stuff. But getting back to Elias's um, article, he says that streaming executives say there are a handful of ways to fraudulently boost an artist numbers, including harnessing bot networks. You know, we talk about spin farms and things like that. They say these bot networks were fake or stolen user accounts. And that this activity has become quote unquote up more intense at Music Biz um, in Nashville, we went to um, Napster Senior VP and General Counsel Matthew Eccles noted that fraud on the platform actually increased uh, over the COVID pandemic. Actually, that's not surprising, really, when you think about it, because people are just sitting around with nothing to do except think, why am I not getting more spins? Right. And they whatever. can't tour so, to kind of generate interest. And yeah, that makes a little bit more sense, right? Right. Exactly. So, and then we've got, uh, you know, people talking about, 
someone who was, was uh, one of the executives was mentioning that the volume of daily streams on Deezer, 7% of those daily streams are now detected as fraudulent. That is shocking yeah. high number. Yeah, that is really high. And they, you know, they, they talked about... You know, um, what was it? The ad supported um, Spotify at one point in 2020, they said that it was nearly 10 percent, uh, according yes. to one executive. So these are not insignificant numbers and it's still a major problem. Um, I think the problem part of it and then we can move on is some of the same things. It's a problem on the ticket side, too. And that is people incorporating these bots um, that can, you know, buy up tickets that they can then resell on the secondary market. And when it comes to fake streams, you know, they use these little pieces of software to boost the numbers and it, it helps the artists if they want to say, look, you know, we deserve to be in this festival or we deserve this, um, whatever it is because we have these big numbers, but they're, they're not real. And I always tell developing artists and middle-class artists, you only want real spins, follows, likes, you know, I would rather have a lot less of those that are real than some of these fake ones. Right. And the article ends with an executive saying that worried that the music industry could enter a phase like professional cycling decades ago when cyclists felt compelled to dope just to compete at a high level. It is key, this person stressed, to avoid a situation where that happens in music. Yeah. And uh, But like you've, you've mentioned a number of times, the last thing you want to do is get busted for that because yeah. then you're off the service. They'll pull and you off. And it's hard to get back on. Yeah. So really interesting article. And that's, uh, again, from Elias Light over at Billboard. And uh, doing some good work. And he's got the next story as well. Yeah, uh, Is the music industry's love affair with TikTok <laughs> dead? Great Come headline. On. Come on. Elias, was that a little bit of clickbait there? Just maybe a little bit. He, he says that marketers used to used to leveraging promotional tools are finding it increasingly, increasingly tough to impact the popular app. And, and that is 100% accurate. I've heard this from so many people that it's just getting tougher and tougher to move the needle because people have seen success with, uh, with TikTok. But as we dig into this article, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, it kind of starts by saying there's been a noticeable shift in the way the music business talks about TikTok. One major label executive with experience running campaigns on the platform recently mused to colleagues that he thought it was dead for breaking new songs. Another calls it not workable. Does TikTok break hits now, asks an A&R executive. There's a bunch of stuff going off there that's not even a hit. We're running, in, we're, we're running on the inertia of what it was. Right. I love the quote from Max Bernstein. He said, TikTok is eating itself. Uh, Max Bernstein founded the uh, marketing agency uh, Muser. Um, he said, it still drives consumption if you get it right, but it's much harder to maneuver now. Trends are siloed uh, when they used to be community-wide. And influencer media is becoming prohibitively expensive. And I'm hearing that from a lot of people that if you want to hire influencers that can move the needle um, on TikTok, they, their market value has gone up so high that a lot of people say they're out of reach. It says a number of A&R and marketing executives feel similarly and that they are trying to adjust strategies when it comes to signing artists and allocating marketing dollars. It's the music business's version of algorithmic anxiety, an industry accustomed to figuring out how to leverage promotional tools to favor its artists is learning that TikTok is increasingly tough to control. Yes, but not everybody agrees with this. And he points out um, the co-founder of the uh, label Black 17 Media, uh, Tyler Blatchley, said that um, you know he's had success um, with um, TikTok and calls the idea that the platform is not workable. He says that's absurd. The app's users help singles like Sam Smith and Kim Petra's Unholy. Hey, we saw Kim Petra's yesterday. Um, saw that song soar on streaming services. Uh, at this point, it's hard to think of a recent hit that wasn't aided and abetted by TikTok. Right. And, and uh, an a, a hip-hop executive said, people are frustrated, though, because they can't finesse the system 
so easily anymore. And that makes a lot of sense, actually. It says this frustration relates to larger anxieties in the music industry. Managers, A&R executives, and marketing folks say it's harder than ever to command listener attention, and they believe TikTok's position as the preeminent music discovery platform is partially to blame. If we're asking how do people find new great artists that they're going to fall in love with, hearing a nine-second snippet of a song is probably not the answer that any one of us would give, said Justin Lehman, who's the founder of Mischief Management. Yeah, but still, you know, TikTok is where the people are spending their time more than 90 minutes a day, according to uh, data analytics company Sensor Tower, nearly twice as much as they spend on Instagram. The music industry has no choice but to try to reach those potential listeners. It's just getting harder and harder to do that. Right. There are a lot of songs that pop quickly on TikTok, but it doesn't have the same effect, effect says Talia Elitzer, who's the co-founder of the indie label and management company God Mode. It's not the golden era of TikTok by any means. Yeah. Confirms another veteran digital marketer. Things aren't performing the way they used to. Yeah. You know, there's two sides to this uh, coin, right? Labels may be shifting their signing strategies around TikTok as well. Whereas record companies have been signing acts for a single viral moment, hoping for a quick returns on their investment. Uh, a bevy of one hit wonders has caused some of some of these guys to contemplate changing course. I've heard of a, a lot more A&Rs that I've been speaking with that go back to signing artists based on musicality, which is exciting, says Tom Collins, co-founder of Creed Media. Wow, Jace, you mean signing people based on their actually talent? That's the, and that's working. It's well, strange. remember, I moderated a panel a couple of months ago at Music Tectonics. Mm -hmm on A&R and data. And one of the things I w that really surprised me about that panel was that most of the A&R people that I kind of spoke to when researching this panel, um, most of them were looking at things like, you know, how are they trending on their, their socials and their streaming? How are they trending as far as the cap rooms that they're playing? Um, they're looking at like that lineup around the block to see them play. Are they generating a lot of interest? And the last thing I'll say on it is one A&R rep told me he notices that there are a lot of these videos on YouTube where it'll have like millions of views. But what he does is he looks at kind of the ratio of how many comments per view. Yeah. And that when something's really hitting like Olivia Rodrigo or whatever it is, there are a ton of comments. They are engaged. And when something's not, you might see millions of views, but not a lot of comments. And he says that's a red flag. So anyway, really yeah. great uh, piece from, uh, from another great piece uh, from Elias. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's not, again, you know, you, you think about uh, all of these things as markets mature, um, no matter what the market is, there, there, there's always going to be sort of a, a, well, and especially in this market, you know, you've got everybody who's releasing music jumping in and try to manipulate it, trying to work it to their advantage. And whenever that happens, things just get crowded in there. And that's right. And, and what whatever you what, what worked last year is not going to necessarily work this year. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah. Um, and everybody wants that silver bullet. Right. Um, yeah. And I've said this before, it's, I'll, I'll say it again, the, the best line from uh, Todd Snyder is, everybody wants the most they can possibly get for the least they can possibly do. And that's from the song, Easy Money. And I think that in this new music business, those that work smarter and uh, not necessarily trying to be lazy and you know hit something off of TikTok and get that market share and that one hit wonder, you know, it, it, it takes work and it takes time. Well, and it's, you know, and that's what's hard about marketing music now is, or developing artists, is there's so many avenues with which you need to pay attention to. And oftentimes <clears throat> what worked the last time, last year, doesn't work now or doesn't work to the same effectiveness. And so you're constantly re-strategizing on how you're going to do what you're going to do. And it's hard. I mean, I have considerable empathy for and sympathy for people that are doing that because it's hard and it's, you know, we all want it to, we all want to have the templates. Yeah. We all want to have the, the tools that always seem to work and that's just not the way it is anymore. Yeah. And As my business partner, Jeff, is fond of saying, you know, if it was that easy, everyone would do it. 
That's right. And then everyone was trying to do it. So on that note, Jay, we must wrap up this episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. We do want to thank our wonderful sponsors, the Music Business Association, Banzugo, HypeBot, and Bands in Town. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, please tell one friend. Yeah, we appreciate, we appreciate that. And Jay will come over to your house and wash your car. So that's just that's all we ask. Just one person. Oh man. Yes, exactly. So on behalf of my good friend Jay Gilbert and myself, we say big thanks for listening in. We sure appreciate it. And uh, the good news is Jay and I will be back next week for the uh, next episode of the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.